I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And this is Spoiler Alert, episode 45 for July. I'm Duncan, and it's good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm Simon. Hey, hey, and frankly, Jesse Eisenberg, if you're going to taste this, see, be a comic con to some sort of genocide, <laughs> uh, could you at least be more specific? Uh, was it the attempted genocide of the Armenians, which Turkey still hotly denies? Uh, the genocide of the Native American peoples, or the genocide of the Jews during the Holocaust, which you think was somehow comparable to hawking your big budget Hollywood film in front of several thousand eager fanboys and girls. I mean, if I'm going to call you out for being an insensitive dick, I at least want to know on whose behalf I'm doing it. Some people don't think before they speak, and unfortunately they have a microphone in front of them, much like we do, but we've got the power of editors editor yeah. as well. So uh, so what have you been watching? Uh, well, well, a few things. I'm going to skim through. Uh, Poltergeist, not the original, the remake. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I had basement-level expectations going on into the remake of Poltergeist, and those expectations were mostly exceeded. <laughs> mostly. Uh, it helps that Sam Rockwell plays the dad, and the early goings uh, are pretty well mounted. Mm-hmm. Lots of subtle creepouts and a really blandly kind of perfect suburban house with just the hint of something off about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only really when the psychic investigators come on the scene that things really fall apart pretty badly. It's just not the same without Zelda Rubenstein. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't help that it hits many of the same beats as the original without improving on them in any way. Though the scary clown, you know, that's still scary, eh? Yeah. Uh, Jurassic World, of course, uh, mm-hmm. which has taken all the money in the world. Mm-hmm. And I can understand why, because people just want dinosaurs, despite what Bryce Dallas Howard's stick-upper backside executive might say. <laughs> uh, and I love the dinosaur action. I'm just a sucker for a prehistoric spectacle. Even when the film is so ludicrously full of stupid questions that don't get smart answers. I'll talk more about Jurassic World later, actually. Mm-hmm. But I did find a lot of big-screen blockbuster joy in watching a new generation of CGI lizards running amok yet right. again. Yeah. Uh, an American in Paris. Uh, the Gene Kelly song and dance film, directed by Vincent Minnelli, which cleaned up at the Oscars, winning six, including Best Picture, and yet it's kind of dated really appallingly. Mm-hmm. Kelly comes across as creepy in the, his pursuit of an, a 19-year younger French girl he besotted with, and the song and dance numbers, which are pretty entertaining, are sometimes inelegantly wedged into the narrative. They don't have that real flow, you know? Yeah. Uh, a year later, he'd make Singing in the Rain, which would be far less successful, and yet today it looks like his masterpiece. Yeah partly because the musical numbers are just better, more memorable, but mostly because of its winning and funny satire of Hollywood. You know, yeah. It's got those levels happening, which American in Paris doesn't. Right. American Paris is just more of a straightforward narrative, I guess. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of similarities. It, it too descends into this uh, third act, really surreal song and dance number, which takes mm-hmm. up a lot of time, which is great. But it's just, it, it doesn't, it won't stick with you in the way that Sing in the Rain will. It's mm. not, not as funny. Yeah. You know? uh, I caught up with Big Man Japan. Okay. Uh, the glacially paced faux documentary about a down on his luck Japanese man whose occupation is transforming into a 100 foot tall monster fighting hero and grappling with some of the most absurd threats to Japan you've ever seen. Uh, from an elastic band armed freak with a ludicrous comb over to a chicken legged bad hue single eye is attached to the end of like this long snake like appendage that he uses like some sort of a whip. Like wow. He spins it around and flings his eye at you. Um, <laughs> It's like really determinedly batty and sporadically entertaining. 
Um, look, there's this insider's term I once heard about in professional wrestling, which describes the end of a match where, you know, everything gets all mucky and, like, chairs come out and people run in and refs yeah. get confused or knocked out. Um, and it all ends in some sort of uh, messy... Yeah, kind of chaos. Yeah, chaos. It's called a schmozzle. I really <laughs> yeah, like yeah. that, a schmozzle. Um, I love the sound of the word schmozzle. Yeah. Uh, and it pretty accurately describes a lot of noise and mess. It disguises the fact that no one really has an ending to the match. Uh, and Big Man Japan ends in a schmozzle, really. Right. Uh, it's an entertaining schmozzle. Yeah. A schmozzle. Where, when was that from? Is that recent? Uh, 2007. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's got a lot of quite basic-looking CGI, which is still kind of charming, but yeah. but, but quite cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, f- lastly, from a film that ends in a schmozzle to a film that's two hours of pure concentrated schmozzle. <laughs> Terminator Genesis. Oh, wow. Yeah, a film I hated. Hated. I say two hours because there's actually probably a decent, because it's a long film, there's probably actually a decent ten minutes I enjoyed. So that's mostly fan service and callbacks at the top, which suggests that Genesis is going to do something clever. Well, it doesn't. Instead, it drowns us in mind-numbing, confusing exposition. Ask us to believe that chipmunk cheat waif Amelia Clark is a fitting like asking here, here to Linda Hamilton. She's not. Expects us to care about mopey Michael Bien replacement Jai Courtney. You won't. And tries to get us G'd up by action sequences that are all CGI and no structure. Uh, that not only have no regard for physics, but Beard have never heard of the word physics. <laughs> um, I just like this film like really intensely. Right, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't I haven't seen it yet. I just despise it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, so and annoying. I, and I sense that from the trailer. Like, mm. I, I, you know, there's people whose opinion I hold in high regard, who was swayed by that trailer, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Like, it's got bad news written all over it. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how about yourself? What have you been watching? Oh, I've seen a cavalcade of movies. It's been a long time, so yeah. um, bear with me. It's all Magician, the astonishing life and work of Orson Welles. Uh, the great director is such a character and larger than life that it's like a mix between Muhammad Ali and Alfred Hitchcock. And in this way, his charm can never really be captured by even the most charming actors. I've seen plenty of people attempt it. Uh, but So he works best in his own words, and uh, he's in full flourish in this loving documentary. It's really good if you get a chance to see it. It's called Magician. Uh, I saw The Glorious Insanity of Mad Max Fury Road. Wonderful. Uh, I got to see that in uh, Times Square as well, which was uh, <laughs> a bit of a dream come true. The Curious Unfinished Business, which on the surface looks like a horrible boss's clone, but actually has aspirations to being a local hero. It's not successful in this attempt, hampered with, a m- with muddled intentions, it's a fish-out-of-water comedy that insists Vince Vaughn play it straight while having a mentally challenged Dave Franco as the conduit for comedy is among many strange decisions. I also saw the harrowing Pablo Escobar Paradise Lost with a role tailor-made for Benicio Del Toro. Uh, like The Last King of Scotland without the eccentric seduction, instead it is a morality tale that spirals into the abyss pretty quickly. Alex Gibney is fast becoming one of my favourite documentary makers to rival Errol Morris and his searing going clear is a damning insight into Scientology. Deliciously delivered interviews with insiders turned outcasts, including 30-year-old devotee and Academy Award winner Paul Haggis. Uh, the film saves its final act for Tom Cruise's involvement, and uh, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Wow. Uh, yeah, and the people he has are people who have been involved for like 30, 35 years. They're guys who, are, you know, it's like, you know, when Nixon was there by himself at the end and all the other guys are getting done getting indicted. Right. And you're basically like, well, if that's that, what they're saying is probably true. And it's the same thing with this, where you're like, all these guys have been, I did this, all these dirty tricks for 30 years. <laughs> and wow, that sounds awesome. Spilling the guts. And similarly, Stop at Nothing, 
chronicling the rise and fall of Lance Armstrong. Not so much a falling idol, but a study of a sociopath. Uh, he's, he's, he's incredible. Speaking of Nixon, they, they say about that, they say, look, Nixon's a bad liar. You know, he's on there saying, I'm not a crook, and he's sweating, and, you know, he, he's... But when you see Lance Armstrong, yeah. he's the reverse. His indignation there and his stone-cold, steely eyes. Two very different movies from Italian director Paolo Versi. The first, Human Capital, is an intriguing mystery that is excellent until the finale, unfortunately, which is forced, rushed, and unsatisfactory. His other is a comedy that immediately got me on side with its use of the gorgeous tunes of Nick Drake. Uh, My name is Tonino, is what it's called, and it's an unpredictable, quirky experience with a young Rachel McAdams perfectly cast as the dream American girl, causing the Italian title character to chase her from Sicily to Rhode Island, only to find culture shock both rewarding and punishing him. I saw two animated classics, finally getting around to seeing the much-loved Spirited Away, like Alice in Wonderland, our heroine is trapped in a magical and dangerous world. Visually, it's a work of art, and the characters and storytelling are so original, it's impossible not to fall in love with the film. And the second is what I think is an instant classic, the wonderful Inside Out. Pixar hits it out of the park with its finest characters since Toy Story. A fully realised world, great voiceover work, heartwarming, and probably the most I've laughed in the cinema all year. Oh, well, that's, that's quite something, because, I mean, neither of us watch a lot of films aimed at kids no no not at all and it's uh it's just that same thing as toy story you know where it works so yeah perfectly and you know i wouldn't even be surprised to set it up for like academy award for best film of the year like that right that good yeah is that good and the effectively creepy the babadook with a great performance from essie davis while it dips into horror cliche it also masterfully avoids it for a lot of time instead providing an atmospheric sinister tale of lurking Evil working as a metaphor for very real domestic issues. Yeah. Uh, and I saw Dumb and Dumber 2. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> From um, the civil line to the ridiculous. W- which was scarier? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dumb and Dumber is one of my favorites, uh, yeah, the original. And predictably, its sequel has none of its quotable lines and a tenth of its laughs. Uh, it does kind of, but it does kind of manage to generate a couple of giggles almost in spite of itself. At the film festival, I saw Phoenix with the final fires of World War II extinguished. A disfigured German Jewish woman returns home and tries to reconnect with the husband who doesn't recognize her and may have, in fact, betrayed her. Despite some stretching of believability, this Hitchcockian tale is beautifully shot and includes one of the most perfectly pitched final scenes of recent memory. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's like you wanted to get us alone so you could kill us and take the billion dollar box. But what would be the motive? <laughs> so, guys. Who else is helping you look for your daughter? No one. Nobody. We don't even have social security cards. We sold them for 30 bucks to two Brazilian guys. The good thing about having no identity is that you never have to worry about identity theft. He can't even be identified by his teeth because he's never even been to a dentist. That's how you keep a low pro. Yep, there's no actual proof that we even exist. If we died, no one would even miss us. We are truly blessed. So, Simon, what's the news? Well, did you know that George Miller flirted with the wacky idea of making Fury Road a black and white action spectacular? Really? Yeah, apparently so. Uh, well, I didn't, but now I'm fascinated by the thought of it. And apparently he went so far as to create the monochrome version and sc- actually screened it at Warner Brothers, uh, demanding that it be released on the Blu-ray special edition of Fury Road. A uh, great idea, which is not going to happen, apparently. I know. <clears throat> but I'm still hoping that maybe nerdier heads prevail and that somehow this version of the apocalypse, some would say this dystopian vision uh, <laughs> makes it out of the wastelands because I don't want to see it, eh? That's fantastic. Yeah, it is. And like, 
you know, it's not just a, a matter of just turning down your chroma levels or whatever. I mean, you, yeah. you actually had to go through it and, and actually massage all the shots to get it to look well, to look perfect in black and white. And he did that, so mm. uh, I want to see it. So he did shoot specifically for that? You'd, you, you'd think you'd have to, wouldn't you? You'd have to... Well, I you take that into consideration anyway. When you're I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm guessing you can do a lot of work with a you know colorist nowadays, and, and it, you can't really have entertained that thought for very long. Yeah, because I mean, it's not going to fly at the multipiece. All the kids going in there going, "What the heck is this?" <laughs> yeah. Change the color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's all kind of superhero news thanks to Comic Con, which was a big win for DC this year with an armful of movies appearing, as well as Star Wars. But what is of most interesting is the rapturous reception the decidedly adult character Deadpool's standalone movie received. It's Star saying he cried tears of joy when he saw the costume he has to wear. The star, of course, is Ryan Reynolds, the spoiler alert favourite who we've said might not be a star after all. Mm. However, I sense we may be proven wrong. I hope so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we also live in a world where a movie called Ant-Man can make it to number one at the box office, dragging $58 million in a single weekend and still be considered a financial disappointment. Mm. As someone said, maybe we're expecting too much from Marvel movies. Yeah, maybe we expect movies about guys who turn ants to do better. I don't know what that says about us. Yeah. Um, yeah. They basically said we were expecting $60 million, Right. So we're disappointed. In 58. Oh, come on, guys. He's quibbling over $2 million. It was, uh, it was Marvel's worst opening since uh, The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, but I mean, surely, uh, surely this was sensed a while ago. Yeah. And in horror news, because someone has to report on it, and you know it's going to be me, the godfather of gore, the man who invented splatter, is at it again. Herschel Gordon Lewis, who first crossed this out in 1964 with 2000 Maniacs, 1964, after a brief spell of sexploitation filmmaking, of course, is still going strong and is about to release his 37th film, Blood Mania, uh, which will no doubt be as shoddy as everything else he's directed. <laughs> uh, look, I'm not here to celebrate the quality of the man's work. Just to point out that an 86-year-old horror film director deserves to, I guess, be kind of celebrated. Yeah. It's a gory achievement, even if I find his films just unwatchable. And I've tried, obviously. I mean, over 50 years in the saddle, that's Cecil B. DeMille territory, which coincidentally is the first time Lewis's name has ever been compared with <laughs> so uh, Cecil B. DeMille's. Um, and if you're sitting here right now going, who the hell is this Herschel G. Lewis dude? Well, the closest he ever got to being in the mainstream was in the film Juno, when Jason Bateman's character makes Juno watch a Lewis film. Yeah. So there's a brief moments of there. Because he's convinced that uh, Herschel Gordon-Lewis is a better horror film director than Juno's favourite, Dario Argento. Uh, and so he's convinced that this all knocks Suspiria off the top spot, you know. Uh, and folks, this was when I realised Bateman's character was not to be trusted. <laughs> so quite early on, I was key to knowing he wasn't a yeah. decent guy. Do you think Diablo Cody intentionally put that in there? I like to think so. Yeah, I like to think so, because <laughs> anyone who's celebrating the work of Lewis over Argento is an idiot. <laughs> well, Amy Schumer's train wreck has launched her into the stratosphere as far as being a cinematic name goes. Uh, it's her debut, and in the mould of Bridesmaids, and even with Kristen Wiig's SNL partner, Bill Hader, as her leading man, Shuma is marking out new territory for herself, and she included a raunchy magazine cover shoot, where she is in post-coital bliss with R2-D2 and C-3PO, uh, and she's gone from rank-and-file TV comedian to one of the biggest names in comedy, and it feels like about the space of a year. Yeah. Crazy. And, yeah, um, really yeah, She's really launched up. You know, someone like Louis C.K., did a similar thing, but you know, you look at him, he's been around for a long time, so yeah, and and working the beat. Uh, so she's really, yeah, just taking off. And finally, from me, uh, get ready for the world's loudest silent movie, uh, Gotta Damarong, a dark fairy tale set to the live musical accompaniment of Henry Rollins, Grace Jones, Iggy Pop, a 
scary, very sweary Jesse Hughes from the Eagles of Death Metal and a host of other performers whose names will be revealed as the production creeps ever closer. Um, I have no idea what to make of this. It sounds naughty, but also maybe awesome as well. It could be. Yeah. Certainly unique. Can't wait to see who else makes the cut. Um, Alice Cooper? Dan Zig? Ah, oh, Dan Zig. <laughs> wait and see. That sounds... We'll keep you posted. Yeah, that sounds mad. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, there's this image uh, of Iggy Pop shirtless, of course, uh, but with like devil horns and, and wings growing out of his back, which looks pretty cool. It's awesome. Well, Emma Stone has laid prostrate and accepted the 50 lashes of public outrage for playing the part of a Hawaiian pilot of partly Asian descent in Cameron Crowe's critically mauled Aloha. She claimed that the subsequent experience has opened her eyes to the whitewashing in Hollywood. It seems inexplicable that a film can get to release without anyone thinking, hey, maybe we shouldn't cast the whitest girl we can find as an Asian woman. But also, I think there's a simpler reason that this happened, a more blindingly obvious one, and that is they got Emma Stone. You know, like, she's one yeah. of the biggest female stars in Hollywood, so if you can get her, why wouldn't you cast her, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. And they were probably just like, oh, look, we can get Emma Stone, and just everyone just disappears. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's completely obvious. <laughs> but also, just Crow has just been, you know, milking that same thing now for a while, um, the same sentiment, all the rest of it, you know, Elizabeth Town, we bought a zoo, everything. It seems a shame for him that, on top of it, getting derided for... Yeah. Be- for, for I, I haven't seen this film. Um, I remember seeing the trailer and thinking it just looked appalling. Yeah. Like the trailer itself is ugly. Mm. Yeah. And, and it had a, I can't even remember the tagline, but it was awful. It's the whole, it just looked terrible. <laughs> so I'm not surprised that the film hasn't done that well. But yeah, I do feel sorry for her because, I mean, you know, it's a role. And, um, yeah. Yeah. She also went on to talk in that same interview, actually, about the age problem. Mm. Um, she referred to playing the love interest of Colin Firth, who was born the same year as her father. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is shocking. I mean, it is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, but then again, maybe ask Gene Kelly about that, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not a new phenomenon, folks. Triple then come. We'll make you smile. Triple then come. It lasts a while. Triple then come. We'll help your mister to punch that breath right in the kisser. Triple then come. And now we're on to no comps, uh, which this month is to do with the New Zealand Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've picked one out, which happens to be a dystopian-themed uh, <laughs> film. And it is The Lobster, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, starring Colin Farrell, Rachel Weisz, Leah Sadu, Ben Wishaw, and John C. Riley. Right, I really expected you to um, stuff up a pronunciation there. We were all dreading this. <laughs> but actually, uh, surprisingly, you got John C. Riley perfect. <laughs> uh, in a dystopian near future, single people are shipped off to a hotel-slash-retraining facility slash dating hell, where they have 45 days to find their perfect match. If they can't fall in love within that time period, then they will be transformed into the animal of their choosing. David, played by Colin Farrell, is the latest guest who has chosen to be transformed into a lobster. However, before his days are through, he escapes into the nearby woods and joins a band of other refugees where he begins a tentative, secretive relationship with Rachel Weisz's short-sighted woman. Honestly, her character simply titled Short-Sighted Woman. Yeah, well, The Lobster isn't so much a metaphor as a direct satire, but somewhere between Charlie Brooker and Stanley Kubrick. Lanthimos is in glorious revelry in the first half of the film. Yeah, the focus is very sharp on its targets. The hotel pitch perfectly between Heidi High-style dancers and, <laughs> and management course lectures. Heidi High. Yeah. <laughs> but the film refuses to go the way you expect, and because of it, those looking for animal transformations as if it's a little-seen Kevin Smith film may be disappointed. 
as David, Colin Farrell makes for, I thought, quite a likable protagonist. Pudgy and anonymous, oscillating between wanting to be truthful about his feelings to lying to the point of altering his entire personality. His seduction of the most ruthlessly violent character is the film at the height of satire, I thought. Yeah. Containing the most unforgettable flirting scene you'll see all year. Uh, Farrell shrugs off an attempted suicide by telling a potential match that he hopes it isn't difficult to sleep with a woman screaming and dying outside his window. <laughs> Fantastic. Look, this was a proper festival-going experience. Yeah. Uh, this was opening night, and it was a surreal, funny, slightly bonkers and disturbing enough film to open with the slaying of a donkey. It's one of those many moments where you have to remind yourself, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. Surely no animals were harmed. Um, it's a cinematic slap in the face and an odd, unconnected one as well. Although it certainly set the tone and hints at the world we're about to enter. Mm. Uh, look, chances are if you've heard of Greek director Yagos Lanthimos at all, it's because of his 2009 Oscar-nominated breakout flick, Dogtooth. But The Lobster's his first English-language film, and it won the jury prize at Cannes as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I really like Colin Farrell this too. Yeah. It's, it's a really egoless performance. He's just this kind of slubby, pitiable character. Um, I was listening to an interview with Rachel Weiss, and she described him as lardy and lumpy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it was delightful. But it's a great cast all around. Uh, I really loved um, Olivia Coleman, who I remember from the TV series Broadchurch, and also, of course, Peep Show. Yeah. Um, and, and Hot Fuzz, yeah. memorably. Uh, she's this arch, acidic hotel manager who, uh, like Duncan, memorably put it there before, it reminds you of a Heidi High camper, kind of. Yeah. But just slightly scary as well. It was almost like a clockwork orange in some parts with the being polite but very severe as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the animal cruelty is you know, built into it. It's quite unnerving in some parts. There's, yeah, totally. Especially with that opening slaughter, I found it interesting. It was met with a lot of laughter. Uh, but then there's a, a, a slaughter later on where the whole audience is all sympathizing. And it just Oof. comes down to... It just comes down to emotional connection, basically, for the, yeah you know, the, the difference. In fact, one of them's, you know, quite quite brutally done in front, and the other one's just shown the, the aftermath of. Yeah, yeah, and you're right, the connection. But the first one is just, it's it's at the beginning, and it's so out of left field at that stage of the film that it does come across as pretty comical. Mm. Although, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm hardly a sucker for watching animals getting killed <laughs> on screen, so I found it pretty hard to watch. Yeah, uh, look, sometimes I thought the littlest touches bring the most reward. Uh, there's, there's the dance we spoke about, the dance evening finishes and the curtains are drawn to reveal, it, to reveal it's lunchtime, you know, in the middle of the day. And that feeling that even time of day has to be forced in this place. Like everyone everyone has to be forced together. And, yeah. And yeah, I felt there was something really jarring about that. Yeah. Here's an approximation of a social uh, interaction. Yeah. This isn't really happening. Yeah. We've, we've just projected this and created it for you. But yeah. you're incapable of actually going to these dances by yourself. And it would seem they are. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, the film has plenty of sharp jabs, damn funny ones at that too, about the conventions of dating, um, as Duncan referred to, the observation that prospective couples have any disagreements, they can be given children to fix that. Yeah. I thought it was um, pretty delightful and got a good laugh as well. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, I like the fact that couples can play tennis, but the single are only allowed to play golf. Yeah. Basically. It's also that really pretty painful scene, well, plain, painful to Dave's character as well. Where uh, he's aroused by the waitress who yeah. comes around the room, you know, uh, to ensure they can still get erections, and then they're kind of aching for more. Yeah. Ah, oh, <laughs> and uh, you know, in a similar vein, that scene with John C. Riley is uh, caught masturbating and has to put his hand in a toaster. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, who thinks of these punishments? <laughs> 
the desperation of some characters is, is both visible and verbalized. Uh, some want to shout it from the rooftops. Others don't want to acknowledge it at all, but it, it's kind of sketched across their face yeah. all the time. And for all the film's weird and confronting moments, some of which we've spoken about, there's something as stark as a desperate woman trying to woo Farrell with all the flair of a bus timetable. It's just mm. among the hardest things to watch. Mm. And I also liked the part where if you, if you hunt down a loner mm. who are out in these woods, if you hunt them down, you get extra days added to your stay, like, like a stay of execution yeah. almost. And because she's ruthless, there's this woman in there, she's so ruthless, she accumulates extra days. But also because she's such a heartless psychopath, she, she never couples with anyone, so she remains in this perpetual limbo. So everyone else has got like, you've got 45 days or you've got 20 days. She's yeah. got like 158 days. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know she's going to be, she's just going to keep clocking up to 365 at yeah. some point and she's just sitting in the spa like gleefully punching people in the head and, and you know, it's not enough for her to just tranquilize people. She's got to like smash them over the head and yeah. make yeah. them bleed. She is vile. <laughs> she is just repulsive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, hilarious and fast and kind of sad how these characters have to have, you know, um, Limping Man, because mm. again, that, that's his character, Limping Man, played by Ben Whiteshaw, who, who delivers a speech where he describes his limp as his, his defining characteristic. Yeah. You know? Um, and he ends up hooking up with this girl who has nosebleeds, and he forces himself to have nosebleeds by banging his face yeah. into, like, the table to make his nosebleed so that they have something in common. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and you know that's such a great satire on on dating and this you know the the trivial things that people find in common. You know? Yeah, that's right. And also forcing yourself into this you know uh, square peg and square peg into a round hole. Yeah, just, just hammering off the sides of just of so what you desperate are. not to be a single. Yeah, and the also the idea that an uncoupled human is is no different than a roving beast. So why not transform into one? You know, yeah, yeah, just, you know, yeah, because right. pretty much all the animals you see are completely by, single. Yeah, by that's right. They around. truly are. Yeah, left to their own devices, the the uneasy wolf pack of singles that has emerged in the woods have created their own insane hardline rules. Kissing is met with the affectionate ones having their mouths cut. The genitals of those that copulate face a similar fate. Oh, the red kiss. Red kiss. <laughs> no flirting. No touching. No dependence. The flip side of the society's obsession with coupling means that a loner is exactly that. Leah Sadu's cold leader and enforcer of the rules runs it like a cult, and her accent lends the French resistance vibe even more authenticity. Look, I did find that, for me anyway, the second half dragged a bit. Yeah. And I think that's because the woods are never quite as interesting as the hotel. The hotel's fascinating, and, and a lot of what we've talked about is the hotel. This macabre, twisted sort of hell with this banal furniture and bizarre rules, you know? But the forest setting lacks those weird characters and sense of menace in a lot of ways, mm. uh, despite the red kiss. A lot of the woodland scenes have unexpected animals drifting through the background. Like there's uh, one scene where they're talking and a camel wanders past uh, or a peacock. So they're all, obviously all these people have transformed, uh, which often feels like an attempt to add colour and quirk and distraction to a scene to me. Mm. Um, it just doesn't quite carry as well as that opening half, you know? Yeah. No, the opening half's uh, brilliant. And the, especially the hotel. I think if you do a hotel well, like The Shining or Barton yeah. Pink or something, it yeah. becomes... A character, character to itself. Yeah. And also because it is under that facade of it's a spa weekend away or something, but in fact you're in a prison yeah. and you're about to be transformed. You don't really know where you are with the film during that hotel. You don't know what's behind the next door. Yeah. You don't know what no. the next set of rules are. Whereas I think once you get to the woods, it tends to be, well, it's all these maniacs running around, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, and apart from Leah Sado and Rachel Weiss's character, you don't know... None of the others really make an impression in the way that there's a, a whole host of characters back at the hotel 
that are really memorable. Mm, yeah, that's right. Especially John C. Riley just turning up for a little cameo there. Yeah, what a great little cameo. <laughs> a Lobster is a film uh, you'll probably stick with until its tense final sequence. And the ending cycles back to a statement that Farrell makes earlier. It is easier to fake emotions you don't have than it is to fake that you're feeling nothing. And the final scene is one that will be debated. In fact, reminding me a little bit of Five Easy Pieces' final scene. The troubling idea that love is never enough. That people cannot be happy with each other's differences. That commonality is the only thing that attaches us to one another. Whether it captivates or confounds will be up to the individual with this film, I, I suspect, especially in the second half. But it's undeniably funny, sad, and I'd say quite unforgettable. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. I mean, it's surreal, inventive, and consistently funny. Well, having something really smart and interesting to say about the way we view being single and the way we enter relationships. Uh, it's half a great film and half a really watchable film for me, which by my like crude mass makes it like, I don't know, one really good film, I think. <laughs> uh, so look, either way, I'd recommend it anyone looking for a, for a great festival pick. If you thought about what animals you want to be if you don't make it? A lobster. I'm going to be a parrot if I don't make it. Why don't you become parrots too? And then we'll all be together. You're a complete idiot. Picking one of the few animals that can talk when you have a speech impediment. You'll lisp, even as an animal. As for you, they'll catch you and put you in a pot of boiling water until you die. And then they'll crack open your claws with a tool, like pliers, and they'll suck out what little flesh you have with their mouths. You're pathetic, both of you. And now it's time for our top five. And sticking with the theme of dystopias, we've decided to talk about five of our favourite futuristic dystopias. Uh, despite what people might tell you, the world is a better place now than it used to be. Sure, you can't buy a house, but for the most part, crime is not <laughs> on the increase. Health is improving. People are living longer. Your internet is faster. And as America reinforced recently, your freedoms are improving. You know, maybe not in Australia, but you know, in the rest <laughs> of the world, life is becoming better and fairer. Uh, but the one place where the world is never going to become better is in the movies, where outside of the chrome and spandex future of the Star Trek universe, life is pretty much going to hell in a handbasket. We've said it repeatedly in previous podcasts, there are no utopias in the future, only dystopias. So today we're going to dig into that cinematic truism and uncover five of the best examples of the world gone wrong as we take you into the frequently savage, often awesome, worlds of five of our favourite futuristic dystopias. What is your idea of a scary future? Mine would have to be that I'm the smartest person in the world. Not because of a Bradley Cooper-esque drugs elevating me to limitless intelligence, but through default. Because society has devolved to the point of collective stupidity. When makeshift apartments sit on mountains of rubbish. Where Gatorade is used to irrigate crops. Where the most popular show is called Owl My Balls and consists of a man being kicked in the genitals for half an hour. Where the president of the free world is a muscle-bound Terry Crews dressed as Apollo Creed entering the ring blasting a machine gun and ruling with an iron fist over the House of Representing. The idea that I would have to be a leader of men is terrifying mainly because I have no idea how anything works. Frustrated by their own ignorance rather than blissfully unaware of, of it like everyone else is of theirs. Although conning people would be a lot easier, so you know, could make, lap, could make cash and probably live pretty sweet, I think. Um, but yeah, Idiocracy is the film I've been talking about because it's a comedy. There's a lot where you go, how does any of this work? How is yeah. the electricity on? Yeah, You know, Idiocracy, when you were t talking about Ow My Balls, um, I was laughing and... It's one of those films where it's funnier to talk about than I think it is to watch. Yeah. Like, it is a funny film, but it's more the ideas behind it that are really, really hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, the Owl My Balls as well is obviously, I think, a bit of a piss take on Jackass. Yeah, totally. For me, dystopias pretty much mean one thing. 
post-apocalyptic desert wastelands fought over by marauding gangs of mohawked and leather-clad bikers, scabby mutants, and fuel-ejected Avengers driving the last of the V8s. Uh, basically Mad Max, and any of a thousand cheap Italian ripoffs of Mad Max. So which one to t- pick for my top five? Well, not Mad Max, obviously. Yeah, it'd be too uh, easy. Yeah, yeah, he's getting all the love in the world right now from us. Uh, he doesn't need my nerd boy praise. Instead, I'm going to opt for the most ridiculous, apocalyptic dystopia of the lot. The world of hell comes to Frogtown. <laughs> of course. It's the story of a badass renegade, Sam Hell, played inevitably, perhaps, by Rowdy Roddy Piper, who becomes property of the female-led US government because he has one vital skill. He's the last fertile man in America. Awesome. And vital, of course, to the survival of the human race. With sexy but detached nurse Spangle, Hell must impregnate seven lovely ladies who, unfortunately, have been kidnapped by mutant toad men in the mutant reservation known as Frogtown. <laughs> Look, is Hell Comes to Frogtown a good film? Well, of course not. But it's the most memorable of the cheap knockoff post apocalyptic flicks that flooded the VH- VHS stores in the 80s. Piper's fun. The seeding material is actually played for laughs, not creep value, fortunately, because it sounds awful. <laughs> um, Nurse Bangle is played by Conan's one true love, Sandal Bergman, and at one point a discussion about Piper's junk is followed immediately by a hard cut to a petrol pump nozzle slamming into the fill of a pink Morris Minor. <laughs> I mean, what's not, what's not to like there? <laughs> that sounds brilliant. It was kind of fun. Roddy Piper, I mean, you know, they live as they well. Live. So yeah. He did this before they live, so he was still honing his acting chops. So, All right. Yeah. You have to forgive him a bit. He's got his uh, dystopias going on, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, directed by Donald J. Jackson, of course, who would go on to helm uh, Lingerie Kickboxer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of so course. Yeah. Academy Award-winning yeah, logic. I just had mentioned that, of course, for yeah. all the fans. <laughs> a cross-country car race capturing the attention of the nation at every televised turn. However, in this race, you can gain extra points by running over invalids or newborn babies. Yes, this is the darkly satirical 70s cult classic Death Race 2000. Populated with superstars with pro wrestling names like Frankenstein, Calamity Jane, and Machine Gun Joe. They drive their death machines cheered on by the bloodthirsty American public, and in many ways a blend between idiocracy and Mad Max, is what we've been talking about. Death Race 2000 takes game shows and NASCAR and leads it to its natural conclusion. But more importantly, it's the distraction of the game that is doing the most harm to the country. This was released just after Watergate and the Vietnam War had wrapped up. The president couldn't be more sinister in 70s reality and in this film's narrative. Living in a lavish luxury, appearing in self-aggrandizing ceremonies, transparently corrupt, and blaming the French for everything. He is the most US president in history. (laughs) (laughs) A French. (laughs) I'm of the opinion that 1998's Dark City just doesn't get the love it deserves. Set in a strange, bleak cityscape, a kind of neo-noir dystopia, Dystopia, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Rufus Sewell stars as a man who struggles to make sense of his memories and may have committed a series of brutal murders. It turns out it's all the work of the mysterious strangers who pause time, alter the present, and watch our reactions like some sort of perverse lab experiments. As directed by Alex Proyas, the director of The Crow, and unfortunately, iRobot. <laughs> hated that film. Dark City is a weird nightmare fueled sci-fi that was a considerable influence on the Matrix films. It draws influences from the German Expressionists and features a kooky Kiefer Sutherland performance uh, and was pretty much destined to be a, a financial flop and a cult oddity, but it's well worth a watch. Uh, Roger Ebert was a massive fan and recorded a fantastic commentary track for the DVD, one of only two he ever recorded. Really? Yeah. The other was for Citizen Kane, which gives you some idea of how highly he values this film. Wow, wow. Yeah. And his, his commentary tracks are marvellous. Yeah. Uh, his one for Citizen Kane is... is yeah. 
It's fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've I've got that one. I've listened to it before. Yeah, I've yeah. got it too. It's one of those things. Um, yeah. one of those DVDs. I think you've got to have in your collection. I haven't seen Dark City actually. It's I a shame. No, I have not. Uh, I remember a fan of the show, friend of the show, Kyle. Yeah, as well, Kyle Hopkins. He's a big fan of it as well. Oh right, so filmed I, in Australia too. Yeah, that's right. So um, I keep meaning to keep around to watching it. So I'll put that on the list. Yeah, it is really worth a watch. And like I say, um, the special edition has Roger Ebert talking about it, and that's a marvelous thing. Yeah, well, that's mm. an endorsement right there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, his review is just. Um, so flattering. And for my last one, I've gone for Demolition Man. Uh, what is interesting about the Stallone 1994 actioner is that it begins in a modern dystopia. LA is a swirl of fire and excessive gang violence. Then Stallone and his nemesis, Wesley Snipes, are frozen and thawed out in a utopia. Probably so Snipes could avoid paying tax. While sex has been eradicated, so is alcohol, meat, violence, murder, and any restaurants other than Taco Bell. The inhabitants are happy, if docile creatures, born into this placid world and singing radio jingles and holding them in reverence as if they were Beatles tunes. Ironically, the utopia is destroyed by its own creator uh, because he wants to use the dystopian elements of the past to vanquish the literal underground rebellion brewing beneath the streets, led by an unwashed Dennis Leary. Because serving up rat burgers, burning fossil fuels and smoking cigarettes is every American's right, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> With nods to Huxley. This futuristic film circles the idea that one man's utopia is another's dystopia. Did I mention this is a Stallone film? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. It was actually, um, yeah, I was going to talk about this too, so I'm, yeah. I'm glad you did because uh, it was a lot of fun too. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this came out in 93 and mm. um, it seemed overly clever for a Stallone film, like you say. Yeah. And, and, and good fun too. Um, it's a rare dystopia, dystopia, as you say, that actually seems like a utopia until, you know, you have to go to the toilet and work out what the three seashells are for. That's right. I haven't seen this film in a while, but I have seen it a couple of times, and I think it's a film that probably benefits from time passing. Yeah. Because Mainly because the ideas in there are quite funny, but also Stallone. You're like, well, it was just another one. Stallone out of the machine, you know, this is the time he's doing cliffhanger and... Yeah. Um, uh, and Judge Dredd and all these other ones, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's another Stallone one. But now you're like, well, that's actually probably one of his last really good films. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And he knits in it, which is always fun. Yeah, that's always yeah. good. <laughs> is that to calm his, like, nerves or something? It is, it is calm, yeah, calm it his was, violence or something? Yeah, it was programmed into him while he was in the cryo sleep. Yeah, yeah. That's right, that's <laughs> right. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And now it's time for the Tree of Woe, uh, our favourite part of the show where we get to punish a cinematic offender from our month in film. So, Duncan, uh, who's annoyed you this month? Well, we've been talking about dystopias, so it seems appropriate that my Tree of Woe recipient is the latest instalment of the most recent popular dystopian franchise. No film has better exemplified the industry standard injustice of splitting the adaptation of a final book into two parts than The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. Interestingly, I have seen every one of these films and every single one I've seen on aeroplanes. And they all get progressively worse. The first is actually quite good. Yeah, I've seen the first. Yeah. It's the only one I've seen. There are a myriad of issues with this movie, though. The supporting characters sit around and discuss the protagonist while she does nothing. The third act lacks a climax, and the film performs the unforgivable crime of completely wasting Jennifer Lawrence, both as an actor and character. In fact, her character's defining attribute you know, much like being wishful was limp, is reluctance. She was a reluctant contestant. She was a reluctant killer. And she's a reluctant superstar. And now reluctant to be used as a propaganda tool. And that is her only struggle in this whole film. The reticence spills over from character to actor because Lawrence looks bored, which is terrible for a charming actor 
who has been so much better and not just superior material, but almost identical material. Like she's been better in these other films. Katniss literally shoots one arrow and it blows up a ship. Other than that, it's a lot of stern looks while hanging out in a building with all the personality of a communist block bathtub. But Katniss is removed of inventiveness, drive, and almost any active moments as a protagonist. It will have you scrambling for a character to identify with. But the real curse of the film is that it's split in two. And it is the absolute worst example of it I've seen. I haven't seen the last two Twilight films. But I suspect Breaking Dawn Part 1 has more pop plot development than this film does. But I have seen The Deathly Hallows Part 1 and The Hobbit Part 2. And those films push the limits of acceptability. Like a burglar trying to convince you you're just dreaming after you've woken up to find them breaking in. These films highlight what is lacking in their respective franchises. Towards the end of Harry Potter Part 1, you question the definite rules the series conveniently discards at its leisure. In The Hobbit, you realise that the indistinguishable characters are just jumping out of the frying pan into the fire for nine hours. <laughs> and The Hunger Games issue is that when people aren't hunting each other, it is dead boring. Seriously, nothing happens in this film. And our protagonist has all the decision-making abilities of a Danish prince minus the snappy dialogue. <laughs> no doubt the second part will be an improvement, but that just indicates how worthless the first part is. A hollow and transparent exercise in revenue gathering. Money doesn't grow on trees, but woe does. So on to the wood with you, where your two parts will be split apart into even smaller parts by the vultures. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awful. It is. It's really, really bad. And, and for the reasons I've indicated. Like you're just sitting there going, I can't believe that you've seen this to the film. The, 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 the chutzpah on you to turn this into yeah. a film. <laughs> I did what I did with all these films. I saw the first one, I've never, never gone back. I yeah. saw the first Twilight, never gone back. Yeah. I see no reason to. Um, and you've just Why supported this? me in this. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> As, again, I've seen all three on, on airplanes. It's yeah. bizarre. Yeah. yeah. They've been on flights and I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, why not? And the first one was fine. I, yeah. Yeah, I thought the first one was, had some really good moments in it. Yeah, I enjoyed the first one. Yeah. So what's been bugging you, Simon? <sighs> okay, look, I promised to return to the subject of Jurassic World later in the podcast, So, and here I go. Like I said, Jurassic World was an enjoyable monster romp, uh, full of the sort of prehistoric carnage that I and all other audiences apparently seem to love. Jurassic World is credited to four different writers, plus Michael Crichton, of course. <laughs> uh, but it's been kicking around for a long time. I remember discussing the concept of mercenary dinosaurs that ends up in this script floating around years ago, even before The Expendables made it its own franchise about, <laughs> about fighting dinosaurs. See what I did? Nice. Yeah. So it's been in development hell for a while. But it seems, as Joss Whedon pointed out, at least one part of its script seems to predate even the original Jurassic Park. And that's its attitude towards women. It all starts with Bryce Dallas Howard's character, a prim, tailored businesswoman. Dick up her backside, like I said before, shrill, humorless, and poised to suck the fun out of any situation. Counted by Chris Pratt, a man's man, who is described, quite rightly, as a badass. Uh, not only is Pratt all the awesome that Howard's corporate drone is not, but he's also right all the time. <laughs> Whereas Howard's clear knows nothing about the park she is seemingly mismanaging into the inevitable dinosaurs break loose and kill everybody scenario, Pratt's dinosaur trainer, and by the way, how is anyone qualified to become a dinosaur <laughs> trainer in the first place? Where do you go to get that sort of... I mean, he was a Navy SEAL. I mean, do they train them to... Do, uh, it makes no sense. <laughs> He reads every situation clearly, thanks, I assume, to his well-developed man brain. Mm. Claire, of course, does show some character progression. Thanks to the steady output of testosterone from the manly Pratt, she transforms from a humorless career monster to a jobless maternal mate for the awesome dinosaur-taming badass. <laughs> Job done. Uh, and yet there's some other weird stuff going on. She gets to man up at one point, a moment quickly forgotten about, and kiss her man as a reward, of course. 
in a moment of Ripley-like heroism that feels shoehorned in to convince us she's, she's gone all kick-ass, even as she runs from a T-Rex in the film's final moments while still wearing high heels, which seems foolish. But if you wanted a clear example of the way this film seems to really dislike uppity women, then you need only look to Claire's assistant, Zara, a woman with a few lines and a character trait of, I'm not really sure, uh, maybe shallow or disinterested? Uh, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure. A wannabe Claire in the making, I think, perhaps? Whatever. Either way, as a warning to potential career women everywhere, she is treated to the most prolonged, unnecessary, brutal death of the film, of, of, of any of the films in the franchise. Wow. A veritable Rube Goldberg-like machine of dinosaur <laughs> moors and talons that viciously and mercilessly torments her and eventually kills her. In a film that mostly looks away when people die, and a lot of people die in this film, believe me, the savaging of poor Katie McGrath's Zara seems unnecessarily savage. Uh, one script blog I visit regularly, penned by a working scriptwriter, uh, guess that this death is possibly a hangover from a previous draft where a more villainous character got put through the equivalent of the dinosaur ringer and that for some reason, possibly because it was just funny or cool or something, the scene was kept in place but parceled off to the poor undeserving Zara. <laughs> Perhaps that's true, but what it looks like is that Jurassic World, once again, just doesn't like women, especially ones that get all you know uppity and think they can have some sort of career or job prospects. And what makes all of this worse is it comes hot on the heels of Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, and the awesome Imperator Furiosa, played by the commanding Charlie Saron, a film that takes for granted that women can be tough and take control. And now we get Jurassic World, which seems to be saying, stand back, stand back love, let a man take care of this. <laughs> oh, That's the sort of outdated sexism that only has one place as far as I'm concerned. And, un and fortunately, I've reserved a spot for it on the Tree of Life, where its cringe-inducing misogyny can be torn apart by vultures, with all the brutality that Jurassic World reserved for women who apparently just don't know their place. <laughs> wow I was kind of keen to see this film um, I don't know if I don't want to give it my money now It's something It really is yeah. um, The only moment of character building And, and I, wasn't, I didn't really notice it at the time But um, I read a bit later on People were talking about it was She's on the phone to her fiancé Saying that he's not allowed to have a bachelor party Right. So basically she's a ball-busting shrew and that's her only, you know, right. moment. And apparently that made her deserving of the worst death you could ever see. Wow. She's just flung around endlessly before uh, ending up in the mouth of one dinosaur that gets swallowed by another dinosaur. Wow. You know, it's just, I, I don't know <laughs> what she did to deserve that. <laughs> no idea. Spoiler alert. And so that's spoiler alert for this month. Mm -hmm. Good to be back. What was your favourite film of the month? Well, well the, yeah, the last couple of months. Oh, last couple of months. Tough choice, just because this uh, this period has been a pretty tough month and a bit of middle of the pack films and downright disappointments. Um, did I mention I saw Terminator Genesis? Yeah. Uh, so is I, that your, your favourite film? Did I tell you it was awful? <laughs> oh, right. Uh, no, it's not my favourite. <laughs> I did manage to get along as the guest of Darren Bevan to the opening of the film festival to see Finders Keepers, uh, a delightful documentary about two men and one mummified leg and the long, strange story of the owner of the leg trying to get it back from the man who sees it as his ticket to fame and fortune. Uh, it's bizarre, enthrall enthralling, and kind of ultimately sad. Uh, a remarkable tale, actually. Right. Uh, how about you? Oh, I've got a lot. Uh, there's so many films that I saw that are just, you know, riveting. I mean, a lot of them I think people will go and see or have seen, like Spirited Away was just amazing. But I'm sure a lot of people have seen that. Right. I think Inside Out is awesome. I think a lot of people will see that. Uh, going Clear as well, the Scientology one, just, you know, 
But again, I think you see that. So I think the one that I'd actually say, out of all of them, the one that really stuck with me was Magician, The Astonishing Life and Work of Orson Welles. And cool. uh, anyone listening to this podcast, it's worth hunting out. It's definitely the best documentary I've seen on Wells himself. So it's not just about Citizen Kane, it's about him. And it's uh, it's so good because it lets him speak so much. He really is the driving force in the in the documentary, um, and he speaks so well. So anyone's into film, I'm sure you'll love it. So Magician, The Astonishing Life and Work of Awesome Wells, if you get a chance to check it out. Great. Good stuff. So, yeah, so come and join us on the Facebook where we're pretty much on every day. Yep. Posting different things. Uh, the music we're going to is from Demolition Man, and it's by Sting doing a cover of The Police, his own band's uh, track called uh, Demolition Man, and he actually did this for the movie. Yeah. And this amazed me because we were talking, we uh, we usually go through this debate about what song to pick and Duncan said, well, we could use Demolition Man by Sting from the movie Demolition Man. <laughs> I'm like, what the heck are you <laughs> talking about? What? And I had to get him to play it to me to prove it exists. (laughs) So, yeah, how could we not play this? Yeah, so um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, We will see you next month. Yes.